Today I want to talk about the Messiah unleashed, the Messiah unmasked, actually. Um, the Messiah unmasked. In, in, in the days of, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, this is Palm Sunday, and that was the day that uh, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And usually we, we preach about that, talk about that. But I want to go a little further with that, because what is happening is, is the, this last week of Jesus' life most of the Gospels are given to this one week out of 33 uh, years of living. One week comprises much of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're looking at it from Matthew and uh, from his point of view. And, and what is going on, actually, is Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah. He's beginning to fulfill a bunch of prophecies about the Messiah even in this last week. And so many times we kind of miss that. We don't see what is actually happening because the people of that day were looking for a political deliverer. They were living under an oppression of a political system. Rome, in fact, um, they held Israel under, under their thumb. But in reality, they, they gave them some privileges they didn't give anybody else. Because usually when Rome conquered a nation, a country... What they would do is take the healthiest and brightest of that country and spread them out throughout their kingdom. They, they wouldn't let them stay in their own country because what would happen? They would get together, form a resistance, and fight again. And so they would take those strong young men, those, uh, the, the, the people of that nation, and they would just put them throughout their kingdom to disperse that power so people couldn't congregate and, 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 and mount an offense against them. Well, Israel, they treated them differently for some reason. They petitioned Rome. Rome let them stay there. They weren't as dispersed as other nations. Now, they did disperse some, but they weren't as dispersed as other nations. And in fact, for Israel, they were dispersed in 586 B.C., hundreds of years before Rome conquered them. They had already been conquered and dispersed somewhat. So Rome let them stay there. Rome let them uh, stay, and in fact even allowed them some self-rule. That's why the Sanhedrin were meeting. That's why we see in Jesus' day these, these religious leaders were allowed to still have some, some degree of, of self-rule, but they didn't let them condemn a man to death. They, they did not have enough power. They could, they could mete out some punishment, but they couldn't bring a death penalty. So that's why when Jesus came, uh, when they arrested Jesus and they brought him in, they wanted to put him to death, but they had to take him to Rome and give them a cause to put Jesus on the cross. And so their cause was that he claimed to be a king in opposition to Caesar. So Pilate said, so you're telling me that you want to serve Caesar rather than your own Messiah? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. You remember that? And so Jesus went to the cross. So we, we see that Jesus, what he's doing in this week, and what I want you to see today, maybe you've never seen before, is that Jesus is revealing himself as this Messiah, as this King. In fact, if you're going to remember something today, at least remember this, that what happens today, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, is the beginning of the beginning. Now, it's not the beginning of the end, it's not the end of the beginning, it's the beginning of the beginning. What do I mean by that? This is beginning this this time where Jesus is revealing himself to the world for who he actually is. Up until now, he would, 
He would deliver people from demonic influence. He would raise people from the dead. He would heal sick. And he would tell them, don't tell anybody who I am. And what would they do? They'd run out and tell it. Why? Because you get that good news, you go and tell it. But Jesus keeps saying, shh, 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 be quiet, don't tell anybody. Because he's teaching, he has a time period he's working in. And now it's time for him to go to the cross. He is revealing himself as the Messiah. Now what really upset the religious leaders of that day is he did not come to conquer Rome. And we're going to see that in the very first thing he did. So stand up with me. It's a, it's a long passage, but you didn't get to stand and sing today. So we're going to, uh, we're going to read uh, uh, the first 23 verses of Matthew 21. Uh, and it, here's how it begins. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage in the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey Tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them and that followed them were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these uh, are saying? And he said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before your throne right now. And we thank you that you are seated there at the right hand of our Father. Father, we ask right now in the name of Christ. And what he did for us on the cross. That your spirit would be poured out on this your church. That our eyes would be opened to behold wonderful things out of your word. That we would see Jesus for who he is. As he revealed himself as the given Messiah, the chosen one. 
And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. We, we won't even cover this whole week of Jesus' life today, but just these first couple of days, a couple of things that happened. Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. Now, as the Christ, the word in Greek is Christ, the word in the Old Testament in, the, in Hebrew is Messiah. And he is showing himself to be the Messiah. If, if you come to the play today, you will hear some dialogue where uh, two Sanhedrin members are arguing about whether or not he can be the Messiah, whether or not he is the Messiah. And, and the, the reason they didn't recognize him as the Messiah is they were looking for the wrong thing. Uh, have you ever been looking for something in your mind? It was a certain shape or color and you were misremembering or you're looking and you're looking right at it and you don't see it? Yeah, that, oh good, I heard some giggles. I'm, I'm glad I'm not crazy. I've done that many times. I'm looking right at it, can't see it because I'm in my mind it looks different. In my mind it's something else. That's what's happening to the people of Jesus' day. They're looking for a conquering king. They want a guy to ride in on a white horse and deliver them from the oppression, the political oppression of Rome. Well, he comes riding in on a donkey. So they missed it. I was wondering why a donkey, why this? And, and, and this passage is found in Zechariah 9.9. You say, Zechariah, where is that? It's toward the end of the Old Testament. And you can look back there. It's not many books back. And here's what it says in Zechariah 9.9. This fulfillment of prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here in the New Testament, when Jesus does this, and they, it's quoted, it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a beast. Of burden, Jesus comes in on a colt. Well, so I looked this up on a on a on a young uh, a a colt of a donkey. It's a it's a younger colt, a younger donkey. And I looked this up, and here's what I found out: that kings in those days would go out to war mounted on their war horse. They would come back on a donkey. When they got back to the city, they'd get on a donkey and ride in because it is a Animal of peace. You wouldn't ride a donkey into war. You came back with it victorious in peace. Because you had defeated the enemy and now there is peace and you would come in. Jesus is kind of reversing the order here. He comes in on a donkey. Now why would Jesus come in on the donkey before he did the war? Because we receive him by faith. We see this Jesus, this man... As the Messiah, by faith, you can't see him as Messiah any other way because they're looking for that conquering king. They're looking for that one who overcame. And, and yet, he's telling you, I've already overcome. I've already, I've, I've won this battle. I know I've won it. I'm going to win it. But he hadn't done it yet. Yet, he already comes in victory on a colt. Those of us who see him must see him in faith. We cannot see him with our eyes. We understand that it's already done it. Jesus had told them, in this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, he said, in the world you'll have trouble, but in me you have peace. 
Jesus has come to establish peace in our heart. Remember when at his birth, the angel said that he came to bring peace on earth to those of goodwill. In other words, when we come to Christ, we come and we receive him by faith. Uh, in, in, a, in the prayer class, I quote the man that I learned much of this from. And, and one of the things he said is we have deified the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, in their day, the first heresy was that he could not possibly be God because he was such a man. In our day, we looking back, we forget how human he was. And we say, well, he was God in the flesh, and we emphasize his godness. But the Bible tells us that he emptied himself of deity and took on humanity and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself to death on a cross. So Jesus rides in on a donkey. The people are revealing who he is. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, our king is coming. That was a, uh, the phrase there. And they're saying that he is blessed. But Jesus rides in on this donkey as already Winning the peace. You see, Jesus brings us peace. We, the Bible tells us in Galatians 5 that fruit of the Spirit, part of it, is peace. And, and it's kind of interesting. I know what we're saying when we say it. But I hear a lot of Christians say, well, I don't have peace about that. What we really mean is I'm unsettled about that issue. And we ought to maybe correct what we say because the Christian should already have peace. Do you understand that as a Christian, we live in the eye of the storm? I don't know if you've ever experienced a hurricane. I've experienced several in my life. I remember when Hugo hit Charleston, though I was not in Charleston. I was a little west of it then. And all that happened at our house was some leaves got blown around. But boy, my family was still in Charleston. In fact, my friend stayed in Charleston when Hugo hit. It came in as a Category 3, but it was a high 3. It was just before becoming a 4 when it slammed into the coast. But it was predicted to go into Jacksonville. In fact, it was headed straight into Jacksonville. And the last minute, it turned one degree north and went straight into Charleston. And between Jacksonville and Charleston, it went from a Category 1 to a high 3 and slammed into the coast. Well, my buddy, who grew up in Charleston like I did... And he was living there at the time, said, hey, this will be cool. Let's go to granddad's house in downtown Charleston and watch the hurricane come in. So he and his dad and his little brother and their families were all crammed into granddad's house. And they stood on the porch to watch the hurricane. He said it went from quiet to sounding like a thousand generators all at once. He said he and his father and his little brother and his little brother played football. He played linebacker, was a walk-on, but made the team at Liberty as a linebacker. And his dad, who had given, was their father, they ran into the house as that noise began and tried to shut the door. And he said it took all three of them to get that door shut. And they endured that howling wind and devastation and I asked him later, he said, yeah, I didn't think we'd make it and probably shouldn't have. But then the eye came right over him. And in the eye of the storm, it was peaceful. It was blue skies. Did you know that? That in the eye of a hurricane, it's blue skies, no wind. Birds start singing. Everybody comes out like, oh, it's over. But now the worst part hits. Do you know as a Christian, we live in the eye of the storm? Because around us, the world's in turmoil. We live in a time, man, we're living in 1984. 
And I don't mean the year, I mean the book. I don't know if you read it. I, I read it when I was a kid. My sister was reading and I read it. I was five years ahead of my classmates reading that crazy book. But man, what he said has come true. And we now, the world tells us that right is wrong and wrong is right. And everything seems upside down. And the way people talk, you got to listen to what they mean, not what they say. Because they're not saying what they mean. And we live in the middle of this storm going on around us. And in Christ we have peace. We serve a king who's already conquered. But he's conquered us. He has beaten our enemy, Satan. He has given us power to overcome sin. And we live in the grace of God right now. But you see, Jesus put it in reverse order. He came in and brought peace so that when we fight, we fight as already victors. When Israel marched into the land that is now called Israel, it was already theirs, but they had to fight for it. It already belonged to them, but they had to do something Jesus, the Bible says, is seated at the right hand of Father until his enemies are made his footstool. And at the end, he will come in as that conquering king and set up a kingdom on this planet, just in case you're an environmental wacko and you think we're going to destroy this planet. Jesus will rule this planet for a thousand years. And it will be destroyed. About two-thirds of it, actually, is going to go away. But in that thousand years, he'll restore This world and then he'll make it all brand new. Say, where do you get that? I'm so glad you asked. I want everybody to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Please. Look with me in Revelation 19. Man, I love this passage because, number one, I like this kind of stuff. And number two, I'm a guy and I really like this kind of stuff. In Revelation 19, listen, beginning in verse 11. I hear you turning. I'm going to give you time to get there. I love it when I hear pages turning. I know now, man, I was doing a senior class one time on a Wednesday night. And I would tell them to open their Bible. And I didn't hear anything. And, I'd, and I, they're all playing on their phone. I'm like, what are you doing? We're looking at the Bible. Oh, I don't hear pages turning, man. It messes me up. Verse 11 of chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called Faithful and True and Righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's a big word for crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen... White and pure were following him on white horses. Who are the armies of heaven in white linen? Us. You wonder where you are in the Bible? There it is. The white linen is what he gives us because he cleansed us. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword from which with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, he'll tread the winepress of the Fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is when Jesus returns to set up his thousand-year reign on this planet. And I don't know about you, I got this real vivid imagination. I grew up playing war in the yard, playing, you know, all the games of warfare and all that stuff as a kid. Most little boys do, at least those that grew up to be men and... Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. 
But I have this crazy imagination and I can just, in my head, the world is going apart in the tribulation and the saints that are left here are crying out and wondering how long is this going to last and what's going to happen. And suddenly heaven's open. And over the edge, whoa, comes the biggest white horse you ever saw. And on it is this warrior. Did you know the name of Jesus is captain of God's armies? Lord Sabaoth. He said that to Joshua at Jericho. Joshua saw him and said, who are you? Our enemy or our friend? He said, neither. I'm captain of God's armies. And it was Jesus talking to Joshua. He said, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. And in Revelation 19, he is finally revealed as that captain of the army. Because in my mind, I, I don't know, maybe the, the closest thing I can say, maybe, I don't know. How many of you saw the movie, The Patriot? Anybody in here? Several of you. Very end of the movie, final fight scene of The Patriot. And they are fighting the British on the North Carolina-South Carolina border. You don't know that that's it, but that's it. That's the battle. And in the movie, all those that are fighting for the cause of America turn to run. And the patriot sees it, and he can't stand it. And he grabs a flag, and he goes running through those retreating soldiers... And they see him running into battle alone with a flag. And they turn and they come with him. It's itsy bitsy close. Because in my head, heaven's open. And this horse comes over. And his robe is dipped in blood, but it's his blood. He's got a name nobody knows but himself. But on him is written, word of God, king of kings, lord of lords. And as you see him coming over as the world is about to be destroyed, behind him suddenly many white horses that can't be counted are following him. And that's us. And we got a white linen and he's coming back to conquer. That's when the king rides into war on his horse. Here he says, that's coming. Let me tell you, I've already brought peace to those who believe I'm the Messiah. And that's why I rode in on a donkey. To fulfill prophecy and also to say, I've already won this war. It's still to be fought, but I've still already won it. And I bring you peace. Secondly, he cleanses the temple. In verses 12 and 13 of Matthew 21, I keep turning my Bible to other passages. And when I look down, what I want is not there. In 20, Matthew 21, 12 and 13, Jesus goes into the temple. He drives out those who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned their tables of the money changers and seats of those. And he said, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned to a den of thieves. Here's what's going on. People from all around the world, Jewish people are coming back to worship in that Passover time. And they need to bring a sacrifice. And so they set up tables because the smallest sacrifice you can make is a pigeon, a bird. And you can buy those. And I don't know if you've ever traveled internationally, but the first thing you do when you get to a different country is you go out to a window in the international airport that will exchange your money for the country that you came from to the country you are now in. So you walk up and you go, I got American money, I need 
your money. I need French money or English money or Burkina Faso money or Senegal money or Israeli money or Syrian money or Turkey money or Thailand money or Argentina money, whatever it is. You better know a little bit about their system before you do that. And that's what's going on in the temple. People from around the world are coming back to worship. They got money from where they came from. And they need some money that is good in that country. And so what was happening is they cheated them. They didn't give them the correct rate. They took more than they should have. Now, we do that, but we tell them we're doing that. Okay, we'll do that. It's going to cost you 10 bucks. All right, got it. Give them $10 American for the service, and then they exchange the rest of your money. Then they had to buy the dove. So what they do? They cheated them on the dove. Now, why did they buy the pigeon? What are they going to use that pigeon for? Jesus is more than just angry that they're being cheated. He's stopping their sacrifices. When you read this in Mark, it says he wouldn't let anybody carry anything through the temple. In other words, he says, ah, stop that. This sacrifice is done. I'm the sacrifice. That's what he's doing. By the way, I get tickled at people who go, well, you're just not being Christ-like. You're being angry. I didn't make a whip. I don't know what you're upset about. <laughs> Jesus made a whip. said, get out of here. I'm the sacrifice. Not these doves. You're going to quit cheating people. This house of prayer. And now we come and the only sacrifice we can bring is a sacrifice of praise because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Right? I owed a debt I couldn't pay. He paid a debt he couldn't owe. One hymn writer said this, Nothing in my hand I bring simply to that cross. I claim. Friend, we can't bring anything to Jesus anymore. To be saved is to come and acknowledge him as the Messiah, as the Savior, and to surrender all that we have to him and say, everything I got is yours. And now all we can do is in prayer, offer sacrifice to God in praise. That's it. Our praise, our sacrifice is now praise. That's what it says in Hebrews. Now we offer the sacrifice of praise. Because to offer that says, I didn't have anything I could buy. I didn't have anything I could bring. I didn't have anything to give. It all comes from you. That's why when you see him on that white horse coming over the edge, he's wearing many crowns. He's wearing the crowns of the saints that he worked through and did everything he did. And he gives us the crown. We say, this wasn't us, this was you. And we cast them at his feet. And he piles those on his head and he comes back and conquers. With us right behind him, coming with him. And here, he stops their sacrifice because it's done. It's over. This morning, if you were in Sunday school, you were studying a passage in Peter where Peter is describing this. Where Peter is saying the sacrifice is done. We are all now priests to the great high priest. Jesus is that high priest. He offers as a sacrifice himself on a cross. And he's about to do that in less than a week. And so on that triumphal entry day, he sets it up. He stops the sacrifice in the temple and says, you're not going to sell any more of those doves. You're not going to cheat people as you do it. Because the sacrifice is here. It's me. 
Then we see him healing and children worshiping him. In verses 14 to 17, uh, we see, first of all, that he is healing the sick. And here uh, we find this in Isaiah 35. Let me read it for you. You can turn there if you'd like to. Isaiah 35, if you'd like to write down the reference. I don't believe it's up there. Um, Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6. And he, 4 through 6, and here's what it says. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance And with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Jesus came to heal us. Now, I know there are people that say, oh, if you're sick, you're out of God's will. Well, that's not what he's saying, necessarily. Because I have diabetes. One day, I'm going to be totally well. I may be in heaven before that happens. But I promise you, I will not have diabetes in heaven. I don't see so good. I've had eye surgery, and I have lenses implanted in my eyes. They took out cataracts and put in lenses. So this eye sees at a distance. This eye is what I read with, and my brain figures it out for me. And sometimes, since my brain's slow, I have trouble. But here's the deal. I was blind in sin to righteousness, and he opened my eyes that I could see him. I was dying in my sin, and he raised me from the dead. My ears could not hear because I was a dead man in trespasses and sin, and I could not hear him say, I love you, and he opened my ears so I could hear the message of the cross. I was crippled and could not run. Run, My tongue could not declare his praises. And he healed me that I could dance before him and sing the glorious story of his salvation. He's done that for me. And he's showing that in the triumphal entry as he heals people there in the temple. And in Psalm 8... Because, you know, religious people, they get mad. In Psalm 8, it says, Out of the mouth of babies or babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And so Jesus is fulfilling two prophecies there. Listen, you came in here this morning, many of you, Maybe you're emotionally sick. Maybe you are in depression and distress and discouragement. Jesus came to heal you. Maybe you're suffering physically. Jesus has come. One day he'll overcome all of that. Sometimes in this life. Sometimes later. But he has overcome all that. And out of the mouth of babies, he's declared praise. I just find it funny That in the church, people would get upset when Jesus heals people and when people praise him. Because they don't praise him like I do. Because you can't praise Jesus unless it sounds like this. Really. I mean, it says the Pharisees were indignant. Do you hear what they are saying? He goes, yeah, I hear them. They got it right. People always ask me, how old does somebody have to be to be saved? Well, the Bible doesn't give us an age. People believe in this age of accountability. 
I told you before, maybe you didn't hear the story, but a young man that was a friend of my oldest daughter died before his 12th birthday in a motorcycle wreck. He was a motorcycle racer, and he crashed, and he died. And his pastor, he came to our church to be with our kids in, at a program, something like Awana's. Wasn't Awana's. And there he heard the gospel and was saved. And his pastor told me at his funeral, because he went to one church, he was a member of one church, he came to our church, and he went to school at another church. So all three of us pastors were doing that funeral. And his pastor looked at me and said, I'm so glad he came to your church and made a profession of faith. Because he was about to turn 12 and take our class for those who have reached the age of accountability. He would have died and busted hell wide open waiting on his 12th birthday. But he got saved. Because here's what I tell people, ask me that question. I notice Jesus never tells kids to grow up and understand. He tells adults to become like children and believe. Because children believe, they trust, they don't question how or why or when or where, they just go, okay, <laughs> and they believe. Jesus has come and offered you salvation, and you're asking him a thousand questions. Now, if you walked up to me and said, I want to give you this Porsche 1911 Turbo Carrera, I would not ask you how you paid for it. I would not ask you how I'm going to afford the insurance because I can't. I won't even ask you if you stole it. I'll go, thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to take it around the block before I start asking any questions. Because I want that car. Not really. But I'm making a point. Jesus comes and says, here's salvation. And you go, really? Well, how are you going to do that? And why are you going to do that? When are you going to do that? And where? And you start asking all these dumb questions. Man, take the salvation. We'll figure out the rest later. And churches so many times make us understand everything before we can simply believe that Jesus loved us enough to die on a cross for us and will save us through his sacrifice offered to the Father on the cross. That was good enough to pay for my sin. But one other thing happens, and it actually happens the next morning. And that's the cursing of the fig tree. And sometimes we don't understand this. And in verses 18 to 23, we read that Jesus is walking along. He gets hungry, sees a fig tree. It's got leaves. He goes over to pick figs, and there's none there. And he curses it, and it dies. And that's always seemed unfair to me, just like it probably seemed unfair to you. And then I started studying about figs. Oh, there's a fig tree behind my house growing up. It was in our neighbor's yard. And they didn't want the figs, so they allowed us to get them. And I would eat figs as a kid till my mom stopped me and said, we're going to get all those and bring them in, and she would make strawberry jelly out of figs. Now, for those of you who think jelly comes from the grocery store, let me explain that to you. The meat of it was a fig, but she put strawberry flavoring in there, and it tasted like strawberries, but the meat was figs, and it was delicious. Now, I like fig preserves. I like the fig. You don't have to make it taste like a strawberry for me because I'd rather have the fig. But fig trees, guess what they produce? How many times a year do you think they make figs? This is not a trick question. Just how many times do you think? I didn't say how many times do they. I said how many times do you think they make figs a year? Twice. 
The first fig it makes is really small and it's inedible. It's bitter, it's nasty, but it is the fig that produces the fig you can eat. And if it has leaves, it should have those little figs on it. And then later, the big crop comes in. So when Jesus walked over to the tree, it wasn't just that it had no figs. It did not have sign that it would ever have figs. Because it didn't even have the little ones on there. It said there were leaves, but there were no figs at all. There was not even the promise of figs. There was nothing but leaves. And he cursed it and said, no man is ever going to eat from you. Because you're never going to produce figs. What do you think the Messiah is saying to us? He's saying, if you look like you should be producing figs, you're putting on your shirt and tie, you're coming to church on Sunday, you're singing praises, you take the communion, you give your money, but you never produce fruit. You're cursed. You see, there are people in church that never produce any fruit on God's investment in their life. You remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? In Isaiah, the, the prophecy that said he would do that says that all the nations get to come in. That everybody gets to be saved. But when you're saved, it should produce fruit in your life. And the fruit is not coming to the church. The fruit is that I have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. It means that, that I grow in In Christ, I become more like Jesus. It means that I tell other people about Jesus. And it produces, as I said, the fruit of our lips, a sacrifice of praise. We begin to praise God for what he's done in our life. And if you look like a fig tree, you ought to make figs. If you look like a Christian, you ought to be producing Christians. You ought to be producing Christ in your own life. People see you, they ought to see Jesus in you. And Jesus curses this fig tree because what he's telling them is, Israel's not producing figs, and I'm done with them. This is a new day, a new covenant, and everybody gets to come in. Everybody gets to be saved. Anyone who repents and comes to Christ gets to be saved. He stopped the sacrifice in the temple. He cursed the fig tree to say it's a new day. There's going to be new fruit. Later on in Romans... The Holy Spirit leads Paul to write to the Jewish people and say, listen, you were a native branch and he removed you and he grafted in a foreign branch. And he says to the Romans, you are the one grafted in. To the non-Jew, you've been grafted in. And if he got rid of the regular branch, don't think he won't get rid of you if you don't straighten up. Now, Are there saved Jews? Absolutely. Are there saved Gentiles? Absolutely. But God does not care about a prayer you prayed in church. What he cares about, what is the fruit in your life? And what is the fruit in my life? Am I producing fruit for Christ? I can't do that on my own. A fig tree can't produce fruit. God causes it to produce fruit. I can't produce fruit. God has to do that in me. But am I allowing God to work out his salvation out of me in this life? That's the question. And if you don't see fruit in your life, then you need to ask yourself a serious question. Do I know Jesus? All of us 
should be sure of that. All of us should make sure of that. All of us should have short accounts with God and every day ask him to live through us and produce fruit in our life. So I got four things maybe this week to help you. Number one, first of all, just agree in humility, Jesus is king. He rode in on a donkey and that is something we receive by faith. And you don't have to know everything to know that he is the king. You just got to know he's the king. And you have to ask him to save you and to be your Lord and Savior. And just acknowledge Jesus, king of your life. Romans 12 says we present our bodies a living sacrifice. He owns us. He tells us what to do. And we don't get to serve ourselves. We can only serve him. Secondly, Jesus made an end of the sacrifice. So don't think you can give enough, pray enough, read enough, go to church enough, or do enough to make him happy. Just thank him that he saved you and that he's willing to use you and let him do that. And thank him for it. Praise him for that. Thirdly, acknowledge the king and receive a spiritual healing. Listen, he wants to be with you. You have discouragement and depression and things in your life are not going right. You come to Christ and he will work that out in his way. There are people suffering People in my family, I know they're in a tough time and they're struggling. They're having a hard time. But I know this, that God is producing in them, the Bible says, a peaceable fruit of righteousness. Paul talked about his struggles, his beatings and his shipwrecks. And he said, these momentary light afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to come. He tells us in Philippians, not only do we get to share in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his suffering. So in the midst of that suffering, you come to Christ, and Christ will put you in the eye of the storm. And even in your trouble, you'll be at peace, knowing that he is in control. And then fourthly, examine your life. And what stage of fruit bearing are you in? You know, in the winter, the tree is bare. And then little buds come out, leaves come out, and that pre-fruit on the fig tree comes out. And then later, the good fruit comes out. And you may just have found Christ and you might just be full of dead limbs and he's about to give you life. You might be producing leaves that look good but no fruit. You might just be in that stage of that early fruit. What job do you think is too small for you? See, we want to produce the nice, juicy, delicious purple fruit in a regular fig tree. Green ones in a lemon fig tree. There is a difference. But we won't get technical about figs. And we all want to produce the big, juicy, good fruit, don't we? And so somebody says, hey, can you work in the nursery? I shouldn't have to change other people's babies' diapers. People ask you, would you come and help clean up? I shouldn't have to clean up a bathroom after someone else has used it. I'm bigger than that. I'm better than that. Really? Then you will never get to do the big things. I think of Billy Graham when I say this because I heard a story about him from someone who was there. They were in another country. He was doing a crusade and some things over there. And he fell ill. And it was later in his life. And they put him in the hospital. And these men were in his room with him. And the nurse came in and said, everybody get out. I have to do this treatment for him. So they went out in the hall. And they're standing there. And in a few minutes, she came bursting out of the room in tears. And they thought he had died. I mean, he was really sick. And They said, what happened? They ran over and she said, no, 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 you don't understand. She said, what he has, it causes him pain every time he takes a breath. And the only thing that brings relief is the treatment that I give him. 
And she said, I was about to give him that treatment and put that mask over his face. And he pushed my hand away and said, before you do that, I need to ask you, do you know Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life? And before he would receive physical relief for his pain, he had to make sure that individual knew Christ. Oh, he gets to preach to thousands in auditoriums. He gets to preach to the entire world at one time on satellite. But he cared about that one nurse who might need Jesus. And if you're too big to try to produce little fruit, you'll never produce big fruit. So this week, do the small thing right in front of you. Whatever God gives you to do, do that. And let's acknowledge Jesus is the Messiah as he is revealing himself to us every day.